Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School Podcast for the first week of February 2024. Woo. This week on the podcast, we're talking about Sundance. Sundance 2024, what sold, what didn't, what was good, what wasn't, all of that. We're also going to talk about the Oscars, specifically how the Oscars remain relevant to independent filmmakers, what you should know about it for your career. And also, I haven't actually read the nominations list, except animation, where I've seen a movie nobody else has seen. And it's great. Robot Dreams. Everybody go watch it. So I'll be reacting in real time to some of the nominations. And we'll wrap it all up with talking about Doug Lyman's decision to pull out of the premiere of his film at South by Southwest, why he is doing that, and how it relates to the, the Amazon purchase of MGM. That is this week on the No Film School Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, having come back and you can probably still hear the tiredness in my voice. It was a whirlwind. I think it was my favorite Sundance. I got in. I got it a little bit early. I did get to see some projects beforehand, which is always nice. But we spoke to, I think, over 15 filmmakers in various departments. And some of them at the end of their festival run, including Molly Manning Walker of How to Have Sex, who I've been, you know, touting that film for a while. Yeah, I loved that great podcast interview with you guys. Thank you. Yeah. She's so like calm, cool, and collected. I'm like, this is like such, I, I actually was so impressed with like the leadership vibes and the, uh, and the like, but like the laid back leadership vibes of all the directors that I met. And then the other thing was, uh, it's sort of a tradition of mine to go to the midnight shorts, uh, which in this case were not at midnight and some of them were not short, uh, but it was a Monday night. And, and it's just like the best place to get weird and like see things that are pushing boundaries. I think my favorite project from the festival was this film called Snake. It's a film that was sort of made in collaboration with the BBC and NFTS, uh, which is uh, the National Film and Television School, I believe, in London. Yeah, it's, I think it's S-H-E and then, which is Snake and in Mandarin, I believe. And gotcha. the director is Renee Zahn, Z-H-A-N, produced by Jesse Romaine. And it was a incredible like live action with stop motion elements. Mm-hmm. And it was giving like Beetlejuice vibes. And I, I loved it. And I loved it, how it was weird. And it kind of like dug into this neuroses of being a person who looks different than everyone else. And when somebody else who looks like that comes into your environment, they can become competition. And it was just such an interesting exploration of like the toxicity around that. And like these little stop motion elements were brilliant, brilliant. And I can't wait to see what else Renee does. And then the final takeaway I'd say from the festival was it, it really felt like people were 
sussing out what the industry vibe is. I I happened to be waiting in the bathroom line at a party with the, a producer of a documentary film that had a wide reception and played the guess who's acquiring you guessing game. And, <laughs> and it was actually very exciting to be like, yes, there are multiple people that they're in conversation with. And then turns out it was, you know, Netflix ended up acquiring the film. The film is Skywalkers. Tune into my interview. Roundtable with a bunch of doc filmmakers, including Jeff Zimbalist, the director of Skywalkers, a love story. And so, so it was like people were kind of on edge, but then we're seeing some positive things come out of the festival, which I think is, is good for the industry. Yeah, we wanted a healthy Sundance. Look, you want one every year, but just given where we've been in society coming out of COVID a couple of years ago and Hollywood just still trying to find its footing. I think it's been hard to figure out like what is Hollywood interested in, especially if you're an independent filmmaker. Am I going to make something that's actually going to make money? And look, I think we can have the art versus commerce conversation as many times as we want here. But if you're making an independent film and you get into Sundance, your hope is, hey, someone acquires this and the most people see it. And uh, you know, this year, I think right now we're at like five, five or six narratives that have been purchased. You know, from fifteen million dollars all the way down and you know not as uh, bold as last year when Netflix bought Fair Play for twenty million, but still good. It's good that these are getting out. I think you know, some of the complications we've seen or at least heard about through the trades are, you know, what is commercial, right? Like is this a are these wide titles that will play different? Like is Sasquatch Sunset, right? A, a fun little weird movie, is that for everyone? Is it worth picking up? I you know, I think these are the big questions that Sundance continually ask, not just about movies, but like about the festival in itself. Like, who is this for? Is this, you know, what, what, what's premiering there? And I do think because of the strikes last year, they had to really focus on independent film again. So it's exciting to see these filmmakers get their ideas out in front of people and hopefully to see Hollywood make some bets on, you know, what they think will connect with people, not just, you know, normal mainstream things. And honestly, to have a Sundance where things could be bought and not everything was pre-sold. I'll just give a little preview of some of the conversations we have coming up. In a couple of days, we'll have an interview with a Sundance success story, I'd say, Lulu Wong, who is out with now a series called, a limited series called Expats, but of course made a big sort of splash on the scene with The Farewell, which premiered at Sundance, her second feature. We also are speaking with Taya Holst. I'm going to butcher her last name and I'm so sorry the director of Handling the Undead, which is this haunting neon film from Neon. I wouldn't say it's a neon film, but it is a film produced by Neon that is having its theatrical release in Norway in early February coming here very soon. And it's really like a masterclass in setting up a shot by shot that unfolds story-wise and hearing about her process was fascinating. And then finally, we have the the producer-director team uh, behind Suncoast, which is a film premiering on Hulu. So that was uh, an example of something that sort of like was having its Sundance premiere, but like we already knew was teed up to premiere on Hulu this year. And then finally, we're going to... I'm going to actually sit on this interview until a certain date, and I'll explain in a moment. But Ryan Koo, our founder, spoke with Mike Plant, the shorts programmer, at Sundance. And it was an amazing conversation. So much insight to this particular thing that really, you know, is the dream of a lot of our emerging filmmaker audience, including myself, is to play in that program, especially Midnight Shorts. And I'm going to hold on that until May, which is when the shorts 
submissions open up yeah. for Sundance. So work on your project and then listen to that in May. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. All right. Well, at the other, it's not even the other end of the spectrum anymore, because I don't know that the Oscars are even in the age of Marvel dominating the studio system. I don't know that the Oscars are really like, they, they're just as likely to honor something that came out of Sundance as they are out of a studio. But at the other yeah, end of the Co- spectrum, Coda won Best Picture two years ago, right? That was a Sundance yeah. sale to Apple. Yeah. And everything, everywhere, all at once wasn't really a truly independent movie, but it was independent filmmakers. Right. And it was people who like did well at so at Sundance with Swiss Army Man. So you know, it is. It's not the Oscars are not what they were in the nineties. Let's say that, and the studios aren't what they were in the nineties. But yeah, our Oscar nominations are out, and I haven't. I have so somehow, other than hearing about Lily Gladstone, which is amazing, I've heard nothing. I've like completely been checked out somehow in the last week. I was shooting something and then I've just been, yeah, my world has moved on, I guess. So what, is, what are the big independent film and filmmaker relevant headlines from the Oscars this year? I think the biggest one that stood out to me is Past Lives. Past Lives has a ton of nominations and I'll pull them up right now. Um, but it was a film at Sundance last year and it's a, it's a yeah. film that sort of is... I actually did not watch it until I was on an airplane coming back from New York very recently. And of course I cried, but I think I would have cried if I were not elevated in those heightened situations that you get on an airplane. Past lives, I will say, uh, I cried. I saw the AMC Century City opening weekend. I broke up a fight right before the movie started oh in the lobby of the AMC. My blood was pumping. And then I sat down to watch that movie, which already was going to emotionally destroy me. And boy, did it, you know, when your adrenaline's just, throbbing in your chest and then also your heart breaks would not recommend it but but i would recommend fast lives which you know was in my top 10 of the year probably in my top three very good chance it's in my top two i thought just such a beautiful movie and an independent movie that i i honestly thought you know we're talking about well we could talk about snubs later maybe but i thought celine song right she uh, directed it that would have been my choice if we were adding someone to the best directors list i thought like that's an incredible movie, an incredible feat. And that, you know, the Academy always hard to get in newer filmmakers and different things, but yeah. just such a special movie that I I will go back to over and over again anytime I want to figure out like chemistry or you know, dialogue or just couple dynamics and some yeah. cool cinematography. It's really a great movie. And second to best directing, it is nominated for best picture and best original screenplay, which is kind yeah. of the the traditional nod for the newbie coming in. And so, yeah, the, you know, the, the, of course it's like, it, people are like snub in this category, rest right. acting, for example, but uh, yeah. So, so past lives definitely worth, should we read the best director nomination saying, like, list? Well, we could go, why don't we do stuff? Cause I feel bad. Look, we are aware that everyone that listens to no film school works different jobs in the industry and, Certainly, we want to highlight all of you. Please check out the Academy Award nominations on our website or, or anywhere else. But I'll give you I'll give you the rundown, and, and maybe we'll go category by category for the big ones. And then get Charles's uh, reaction. Exactly. Get Charles' reaction. So I'm going to start, unlike uh, the way they announce them, I'll start with Best Picture, because it's the top of the article, Charles. And I'm going to read you the titles, nominated for Best Picture, and then we'll get your noob reaction here, your, your fresh <laughs> blood, fresh meat reaction here. American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie. The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, 
past lives, poor things, and the zone of interest. I mean, that seems like exact, like, uh, is anyone acting like any of that is a surprise? That seems like the list any betting pool would have made. Those (laughs) are good movies. Barbie should probably win. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, We can disagree on what you win. But, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a huge uh, American fiction fan. I'm very happy that that slipped in there. I know, you know, I, I felt like that rollout, they didn't have enough commercials or whatever. And it's like marketing. Also, full disclosure, one of my first bosses or coworkers ever produced American fiction. So I'm incredibly oh. pr- proud of you, Ben LeClaire. You're the best guy and uh, you deserve this. And you've made a ton of cool movies. So to see him get his due. The Holdovers is one of the most surprisingly beautiful movies I thought this year. Alexander Payne still has it. And it's funny, like when we started covering The Holdovers, the big thing we covered was that Alexander Payne quote where he's like, people in Hollywood just don't want to, or like, I don't know any writers, directors who want to make movies like this anymore. And it felt at the time like, a little bit of an asinine quote because it's like people are dying to make movies like this. You have to get independent financing, Paul Giamatti, an incredible script, and some luck to get it, and and an Academy Award, not, uh, Academy Award nominated director to make it. You know, so to see it come from that, which like I was walking to that movie maybe already a little PO'd, if you will, mm-hmm. and then watched again a, a movie that is you know I thought was transformative for me and and I saw it three times. I thought it was so good. Anytime anybody was like, oh, I'm interested in seeing that. I was like, I'll go with you today. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, I I love American fiction. It's probably my favorite movie of last year. I thought it was fantastic, but the Academy is never going to give a movie with that box office best picture because like the Oscars, I love the, the Oscars are fascinating. One of my favorite things about the Oscars are when they bring attention to a movie that wouldn't get it otherwise. And Absolutely. so I'm just happy American fiction was nominated because it will get more people. The, the number of times I've been talking about American fiction in the last month and people have been like, what's that? And I'm like, it's the best movie. The Flash, and it's Shippery Wright. You, you know from the Bond movies and many other great things. But like yeah. a normie audience, you're going to be like, this guy from the Bond movie, he's the lead. It is great. Everyone is good in it. The script is fantastic. The car casting is perfect. I want a TikTok video about the watches. And yeah, do you hear that Sony marketing like or Paramount? Who, it was Sony who released that, right? Yes, I don't remember who released it. Uh, whoever. MRC I would, and, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not going to win. Yeah, it's funny. You know, the other big headline, I think, without getting into like, obviously, there's a dozen big headlines about Martin Scorsese and Christopher Nolan. Perhaps you've heard of them. But the other big one I <laughs> thought was Anatomy of a Fall, right? So foreign language film being nominated for Best Picture usually, in here's my opinion, means it's transcended what we normally find to be the burden of watching a foreign film, which is, you know, we were appropriately <laughs> clowned on a few years ago, reading subtitles. But Anatomy of the Fall, you know, big props to their cover of 50 Cent's PIMP. Legitimately will be stuck in your head for days, if not months, after seeing that movie. But also a fun nomination, I thought, just in terms of... Um, how global we have gotten, right? I think I remember Pan, when Pan's Labyrinth was, you know, big and, and won Best Foreign Feature. It was like the conversation around that was, well, shouldn't this have just been nominated for Best Picture, right? Like, you know, and there was always that fear for international filmmakers. You decide what you put your film up for. Hey, if I don't put it up for Best International Feature, you know, will it get the nods I think it should get? So seeing Anatomy of a Fall slip in here, and obviously France had put up a different movie anyway, but seeing it get in here is great. And I think, more power to Justine Triet, who had a very, very fun Criterion Collection closet video the other day, and again is getting her just desserts with also a Best Director nomination. But the thing is, is like 
you know, we've been talking about this since we talked about Parasite, which is like the Oscars have a wonderful opportunity to continue to expand on this and try and attempt to become the international award. Yeah. And I think it would be smart for them to do so. You know, obviously I'm not, they're not hiring me to run the Oscars, but I think it got a lot of good press for Parasite when Parasite won. And I think the argument the Oscars was always trying to make is we were the worldwide award and, you know, Hollywood just dominated the industry. And yeah, it's, I think, I, I like seeing this. I feel like it's a good direction for the Oscars to continue to go to try and stay internationally relevant. I mean, even if we're just going to talk about and sense, I bet the ratings are better in France this year because there's a French movie nominated. Than, than Absolutely. Yeah. I guarantee you France usually does not watch the Oscars because France. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll give you all the actors nominated. So actors and actresses in leading roles. We have Bradley Cooper for Maestro, Coleman Domingo for Rustin, Paul Giamatti for The Holdovers, Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer, Jeffrey Wright for American Fiction. And in the actress category, we have Annette Benning for Nyad, Lily Gladstone for Killers of Flower Moon, Sandra Huller for Anatomy of a Fall, Carrie Mulligan for Maestro, and then Emma Stone for Poor Things. So again, like we're not getting that many different titles in here. Obviously, Nyad, Rustin, and I'm trying to think of anything else. And the rest of them, you know, were movies nominated for Best Picture. So I thought kind of fascinating there in terms of, you know, what was pulled in. And, and really, it does feel like the Academy kind of had a consensus over, hey, we think these are the best movies. So we are going to nominate within those things. And Coleman Domingo was a surprise for me. I enjoyed Rustin. It was on Netflix. Bayard Rustin, the biopic, was based on From My Hometown, something mm-hmm. I have known, I guess, my whole life, because our high school is called Bayard Rustin. But <laughs> not the high school I went to, but you know, the, one of the other ones in town. So fun to see that. I think that was like a little bit of, not necessarily out of left field, like there's, there was good buzz around it. But again, like the Academy very set in their ways in terms of what they are deciding to award this year. Well, and we continue to see biopics sneak in, right? Like Nyad, yeah. also one of those like, right. like uh, no offense to anyone involved in Nyad. I'm sure it's a sure. beautiful movie, but the movie where everyone's like, what? Like, mm-hmm. I've not heard of this movie. And right. like, I get all of the marketing emails and it hadn't hit my marketing radar somehow. But you know, in, in the, they love a biopic. A, a, a strong biopic can be a thing. It looks great. I, I want to give it a look. I like Claudia Miranda's work. Just uh, acknowledging the buzz around people being upset that Margot Robbie is not included in this category. Sure. I think it's just hard. acknowledging you know, it. <laughs> yeah, we we have. I do. I, I definitely feel bad for. I mean, Barbie received eight nominations, so it's not like it was shut out totally. You know, obviously for Best Picture and Best Writing as well, which we'll get to. When you have 10 Best Picture nominations, it does feel like you've satisfied an urge that you've covered every emotion almost that you've had that year. And there's one or two left out. When you start narrowing down the acting, I do think that's when things get left. I, I enjoyed Nyad. Annette Benning, who I think is an all-time great actress, would probably have been the one if I had to take a stand. Mm. No one's making me that I would have left off made for Margot Robbie. But then I go back and I'm like, I don't know. Like, I thought... Uh, <laughs> You know, the cast of past lives maybe should be. <laughs> yeah, it just goes back to the, well. you know, the yeah. trend or the thing that we always see, which is drama. Drama trumps comedy in awards always, Absolutely. which yeah. I think is bullshit. Comedy is harder than drama. And I'll, <laughs> it's, yeah. I'll end it there. Well, beyond <laughs> that, what Margot Robbie did in Barbie is legitimately an incredibly technically difficult performance. She mm-hmm. takes like, she takes a character that we all have some sort of association with. Yes. And I've, and like, I've, I've not heard, 
you know, think about the number of times that you've heard people object to the casting of like, oh, I can't believe this person played JFK. Or I can't believe this. Like, right. She, she took the most known cultural property and she gave it body and voice in a way that I've never heard a single person be like, yeah, I just didn't like her take on Barbie. And right. also did a like journey to emotional depth and existential angst within a comedy that like you just like, yeah, I mean, Margot Robbie obviously should have been nominated. I think is one of the best performers of the year. And like, as much as I enjoyed Ryan Gosling as Ken, like you, you could imagine like five people doing the Ken part. Like Ryan Gosling is great. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But like, there's a couple other people who could probably have also nailed that. Like there is no one who could have done what Margot Robbie did in Barbie. It's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. But the thing that I always go back to with the Oscars is like, guys, it's a chaotic voting process in which there's no requirement for the people voting to have actually seen the movie for start. Yeah. Like it's, they get these ballots and, and also every attempt to um, like try and like, like there's not John Oscar sitting around figuring out like, well, we got to make sure. And then this person, and they actually, they were so worried. I always like to remind people of Harold Russell, Harold Russell. If you guys don't know it, he's the only person who got nominated for an Oscar twice. And for the same role, and it's a great movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, which everybody should see. It is a phenomenal movie. And Absolutely. He, yeah. Oh, that movie is so good. 1946, uh, like the first real essence of the words, like post-traumatic stress on, like, just also the opening scene is amazing. You know, like, I think it might be in our opening scene article. It's going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> and like, the screenplay is great because the writer was like, straight up, I'm not going to write this in screenplay format and did the first draft as an epic poem. Which, yeah, William Wyler, baby, directed yeah. it, right? Yeah, incredible. So Harold Russell was a veteran who lost his hands during the war, so he didn't have hands, and he was in all of these training films during the war, and off of that, he was cast in The Best Years of Our Lives as a veteran who'd lost his hands in the war. Gives an amazing performance. The Academy was so worried he would not get nominated, right? They created a special award just for him to nominate for because they were afraid he wouldn't get nominated because oh my they God. had so little control, but it was important to them that they were like, yeah, but Harold Russell's got to get something, right? So they got, they they made a special award category just for Harold Russell, and then he got nominated anyway. Yeah. So he got nominated twice for the same performance in the same movie, which is wild. Harold Russell also, he won one of those two, and then he sold his Oscar in the 80s to pay for his wife's health care, and there's this big drama, and he was like, what, guys? We should have better veteran health care. And yeah. if this is what I've got to do to pay for my wife's health care, I will do it, which I think is like a perfectly legitimate reason to sell your Oscar if you feel like it. But, you know, there is no John Oscar who is out there who's like, I can make it a specific thing. I don't think it's a deliberate. Sum. I do think the vagaries of voting were unfortunate because I think it is weird that Margot Robbie didn't get nominated. That's yeah, strange. We have, totally deserved. Yeah. Apropos, we have an article on no films that details the way Oscar voting happens and who gets a vote. It's around 10,000 people in the Academy. If you're an actor, you're voting for who should be nominated for best actor. And then they're tabulating like that. Same deal with the director. And then everyone votes for best picture. So, you know, it would be fascinating look to get like an age breakdown of who voted for what. But the Academy kind of went through this during Oscars So White a couple of years ago. They added over, I think, 2,500 new members. So, you know, we'll be fascinating to see how that changes over time, you know, as they continue to add and subtract and do whatever. I'll just get right into actors and actresses in supporting roles. You have Sterling K. Brown for American Fiction, De Niro, Robert De Niro for Killers of Flower Moon, Robert Downey Jr. for Oppenheimer, Ryan Gosling, the aforementioned for Barbie, 
Mark Ruffalo for Poor Things, Emily Blunt in Oppenheimer, Danielle Brooks in The Color Purple, America Ferreira for Barbie, Jodie Foster for Nyad, and Divine Joy Randolph for The Holdovers. If we're going to pick who's you know, trending towards winning right now, I think Robert Downey Jr. has won the other major awards, Golden Globes, and I think the critics for Oppenheimer. So trending towards victory there, you know, depending. Divine Joy Randolph is also kind of on a heater right now, winning for the holdovers, which will be, you know, interesting. That Again, those are the people who are leading the, the pack. I also, you know, in my heart of hearts, I think are the people who I enjoyed the most doing those roles. So yeah, this is the rare year where I'm like, I, I feel pretty good about this. But, no, but Robert Downey Jr. is amazing, but what Sterling K. Brown manages to do in American fiction is phenomenal. And again, it's comedy not getting sure. respect that drama does. Absolutely. What's yeah. And I think screen time brother? too. Yeah. 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 We'll go right into, let's go to directing. We have Justine Triet for Anatomy of a Fall, Martin Scorsese, perhaps you've heard of him, Killers of the Flower Moon, Christopher Nolan, Oppenheimer, Yorgos Lanthimos for Poor Things, and then Jonathan Glazer for The Zone of Interest. I feel like there's somebody missing in this category. Who's missing? Yeah. <laughs> Where's Greta Gerwig? I mean, again, this is yeah hot topic. We've kind of touched on it, but I, I think that Greta Gerwig did something pretty impossible with by creating a story and being the through line of Barbie, making it work and making what could have been a disaster, something that's like delightful and entertaining. And she's been snubbed a couple of times when it comes to directing. So I hope that someday she will get Just her... For- Lady Bird, right? Yeah. Every other movie, because she was nominated for directing for Little Women, right? Little Women. So but Lady Bird. The, yeah. And yeah, Barbie. First movie. Yeah. 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 She's crushing it in the screenplay category, I will say. Always nominated yes, yes. there. Little Women. Yeah. I think it's tough again with out of those five. I, I think it would be hard to, to say who, who comes out, you know, like I, I don't know. And then maybe we're talking about like expanding the categories later anyway, right? Just, Again, when you have that many movies that come out this year and you're trying to nominate everybody, I think that's always the thing. With the directing, and this is something I read, which I don't necessarily know if it's correct. Uh, I read it on Twitter from a reviewer. But like the way tiered voting works for Best Picture, like you have to have people put you number one to get into the, like into the finals, right? Because the way they do it is like, Hey, if you're if you're if everyone consensus ranks something number one and ranks something else number two, it wouldn't be nominated because you need number one ranks, which is fun. But for the popular vote in directing, you're just voting like it's you know simple majority. So I do you know it's tough with all these directors without knowing exactly how many thousands are voting, how many votes you would actually need. I know in a couple of newsletters they're saying around a hundred votes can get you a nomination, you know, if you can campaign or do whatever, you know, the secret campaigning for the Oscars are now allowed to go out about. I I think it's tough. I do think, again, Barbie getting eight nominations is a lot for, you know, a a studio, a commercial studio movie from the Academy that's pretty snobby, but also like (laughs) it would be hard to, I I don't, I wouldn't want to pick who I would leave off the directing list because I thought all those people did such a good job. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're going to expand in the future. If you're going to have 10 whatever, 10 Best Picture nominations. Should we have 10 directors or like the ability to add more people? I guess TBD for the Academy. It might help to get more viewers in. You know, I think if she was up, it would be more popular, but it's definitely an interesting situation for the Academy. 
Well, I mean, but they didn't, you know, the Academy has interesting feelings on how popular they want to be. Like, if they're being strategic, they would have nominated Taylor Swift for Best Short. She clearly right. wanted it. It would yeah. have driven viewership, right, if people thought T-Swift was going to be there supporting her short. Yeah. But they didn't nominate for Short. And that's one. Yeah, so you're, you're going out on the, I think you're making the argument that it's not misogyny, but snobbery that led to fewer Barbie. Because it's a, I mean... It would be hard for me to be picking misogyny just because Justine Triet, who's less famous, got an, a nomination, right? So, like, and I guess also, like, if I was going to use that argument, I would also be like, where's Celine's song? Where's, like, there's a, a long a long list of women that I also am like, okay, well, other people, where's Ava DuVernay for origin, you know? Well, I do think that there is obviously this space that's pre-carved out for the likes of Martin Scorsese. Like anything he touches, people are just going to be like, oh, well, of course, like we're going to vote for him because he's Marty. And like, he's, yeah. He famously didn't win an Oscar until really late in his career, right? Like when he yeah. finally won for The Departed, everyone's like, it's taken 35 years to get here. So like, it he is, also, like, yeah. three and a half, he made a three and a half hour movie. Yeah, I do think it's like, he, he didn't make like the most accessible movie of all time. He made a three and a half hour indictment of like classical Hollywood and like, you know, the American West mythos. So like, I don't, I do think. I don't know if that's best directing. Like, I think that it's, I actually am upset that somebody would make a three and a half hour movie that feels indulgent. And I have a a feeling that a lot of the Academy voters are just defaulting to what they know. And I think that is based in misogyny. I mean, look at the numbers of female directors. Like it is still uh, atrocious compared to parody. And I think that we will constantly be, and this is outside of just Greta Gerwig not being nominated. I think that it's hard for people to envision women in these positions to this day. I mean, the fact that, like you brought up, Jason, Ava DuVernay, like, where is any of that recognition? That film, which, you know, she decided to go outside of this. It's an independent film. It is not getting any recognition. There's an amazing interview with her and Terry Gross that I recommend listening to but like they just it, that's a film that like I, I just think it's very easy to just fall back on what we know what's familiar and that's why we're seeing these names that are what's comfortable I think that's a fair argument for sure yeah yeah ahead, I think the academy voters are notoriously like even with the 2500 extra members they added after Oscar so white I think the Academy voters has always skewed older and will always skew older because it's mm-hmm. a membership you get later in your career. Yeah, you have and, to have a lot of credits. Yeah. yeah, and they will see the movies. They don't have to see all of the movies. And there are screenings that they can go to, but like, yeah, it will always be like who I am familiar with. And I think the Oscars are not going to be a leading edge of culture, but a trailing edge of culture. Mm, yeah. That being said, I do think Celine San not showing up is a bigger... Like, I think there are other examples, Ava DuVernay, that are more likely rooted in misogyny. Yeah. I think Jason might rewrite that Barbie is just snobbery, that it's just like, because it's a mainstream cultural property, because it's like, in their mind, it's like a Marvel movie. And in their mind, it's like, I I, I would be surprised if a significant majority of them even saw it, despite the fact that it was like a cultural phenomenon. But it did get eight nominations, right? I guess I'm a little bit like, if it wasn't on here at all, then I'm, I'm, would be on your thing. But I, I think like, Greta Gerwig did get nominated for producing that movie. Like, it's not like she's left off. Or Margot Robbie did. And Greta Gerwig's nominated for the writing. So, like, you know, different things. I do think it's just, like, the difficulty of packing that in there in terms of... Yeah, I I do think there's some snobbery. I don't... I don't know. 
I my my worry would be like, are we discounting who like that Martin Scorsese made what I consider like again subjective medium for me? I think he made a late career masterpiece that's so important, and I I feel like maybe someone wrote it down because of that, but I also wouldn't take away of what he what he did, which to me feels like three and a half hours. I don't like that's like classical Hollywood. Like the, I made an an opus. Like this is my grand, you know, kind of like Maestro. This is my this is this is what I have to say just about like the fulfillment of my career. It's going to be long. Like I, I thought the Irishman was like too short. You know, I, I want to, I want to live in that world for a long time, but I do think the subjectiveness of this is kind of what has made it last for 96 years. Right. Cause you can talk mm-hmm. about it. There's some great stories. People strive to get it. It's tough. I, I don't know. Like I, like I was very happy to see Jonathan Glazer in zone of interest on there. Cause again, that's like a, an indie movie completely in German. From, you know, the point of view of the family running Auschwitz, like I, you know, I get like, I understand like a lot of times we'll joke about Holocaust movies always being nominated, but like that is not a, there is not a likable character in the bunch there. And then it also yeah. indicts the audience at the end being like, you've become so, uh, so yeah, complicit in this that I could show you pictures from Auschwitz today and you wouldn't care. And it's, and you'd find it to be mundane and it's kind of a dangerous thing. And feel like timely yeah it's weird i mean look i i i think greta gerwig's amazing L- lady bird was my favorite movie that year and i i wish she got more nominations but i also just like i if i was gonna take a name off the list i guess it'd be yorgos lanthimos for poor things but also i'm like that's a pretty well directed movie too that did mm-hmm. the same thing barbie did i mean incredible elaborate sets they built doing whatever like story of a woman on a journey trying to figure out who she is like blah 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 so you know i i, I don't know difficult it's difficult look i'm i'm glad i don't get to vote it'd be great to get to vote because then you get all the screeners you know i had to pay to see all these movies i'm looking right now i'm like this is like uh reading my credit card statement here uh real quick it is good to see that like maestro about bradley cooper did not receive a best directing because i'm like i watched it and i was like great performance this isn't directing like there's a whole dance sequence that's like from I'm like, what perspective are we in? And this is not grand, grandiose or exciting in any way. So, so like, I think there are some, there is some evidence that there, you know, is looking at the craft, looking at the craft of directing. Yeah. If he was nominated, I'd be up. Well, also, the joke we always make with all the crafts is that all of the craft awards are never the best. It's the most. Especially mm. editing. It's never the best edited movie. It's the oh, most yes. edited movie. Oh, yes. I love that. I love this hot take that you had. We talked about this yeah. last year, and it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. Like, who- and I feel like even with directing, like, directing is about crafting these images that tell a very specific story, and it's about understanding sets and everything. And, like, Barbie is incredibly well-directed, and there's all of this attention to detail and all of this, like, perfect handling of tone that is beautiful. There is not a, a nine-minute single shot where the camera's flying in and out right. of this thing. And look, it's, she's not trying to most direct it. Yeah. But a lot of times, the most directed thing... I mean, James Cameron had a great thing where he's like, there's no long takes in my movies because I find them really distracting in other people's movies. Mm-hmm. And I was yeah. like, yeah, James Cameron. And you, you like big everything. And right. you don't want nine-minute takes in your movie. And I think Barbie is, in some ways, very showy in terms of visual design. But it is not exceptionally showy in its direction. It does not call right. a lot of attention to its own direction. Right. In a way that I think sometimes the Academy tends to focus on like the most edited movie. And there's some choices <laughs> in some of those craft categories where you're like, really? That one? That? 
I'm, there's some best edited movies where I'm like, no, that was not best edited, but there were many cuts. So right. I get it. And I think that that is also coming into play here as well, where it's like, you know, yeah, I really liked Killers of Flower Moon, but it is also very directed. There's a lot of directing going on, which is like, mm. it's fun. It's Scorsese. I like Scorsese's movies, but like, there's a lot there. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, also, the Oscars were created to deliberately prevent labor unity by making yeah. people compete with each other. Like, it, we all know that now. <laughs> oh, so. my gosh. That's, like, get, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. I didn't, and I should know, because we've, like, talked so much about labor yeah, unions. Louis B. Mayer deliberately created the Academy, yeah. because he's like, as long as they're fighting with each other over awards, they're not going to unify yeah, with me. me. Yeah. They won't bug me for more oh, money. Oh, my gosh. And here we yeah. are. Yeah. Almost 100 doing years just- later doing it. I know. You can check out all the Academy Award nominees again on our website. Uh, we don't have time to go through all of them. You know, I'll quickly read out some others just for writing. Original screenplay, Anatomy of Fall, Holdovers, Maestro, May, Dece- May December, which I love, Past yes. Lives. Uh, Listen Haynes, to our interview guy. with Sammy yeah. Birch on May, December. She's yes. fantastic. Yeah. Adapted screenplay, American Fiction, Barbie, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, Zone of Interest, International Feature, Il Capitano, Perfect Days, Society of Snow, which I just watched this weekend. So depressing. <laughs> Very well made, but depressing. The Teacher's Lounge, The Zone of Interest, which we have a couple articles on just in terms of directorial choices that I thought were bold in it. Animated feature film, Boy and the Heron, Elemental, uh, Nimona, Robot Dreams, which Charles has seen, endorsed, and loved. Robot uh, Dreams is great. Everybody go see Robot Dreams the day. <laughs> America soon, yeah. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse as well. And then just quickly at the end, I'll do documentary just to get all the major categories. Bobby Wine, The People's President, Eternal Memory, Four Daughters, To Kill a Tiger, and 20 Days in Maripol. So again, the full list on our website. We didn't go over cinematography or editing or the shorts or production design or costume or music or hairstyling or sound or visual effects. All the people we love and you know don't have time for on this show, but wanted to make sure we got the major conversation in there. We have 10 minutes left because I know we have a hard out. So does that mean we have time to talk about Doug Lyman? Let's talk Doug. So Doug Lyman took a hard swing about, about his upcoming Roadhouse remake. Here's the context. He agreed to make Roadhouse with MGM as a theatrical motion picture, meaning theatrical release. Jake Gyllenhaal signed a contract with theatrical release in mind, which means his residual, there was assuming some of his pay would come in residuals. You negotiate a separate contract when there's a theatrical coming or when it's an online release where you're not getting residuals. Everybody cast and crew, theatrical movie. Doug Lyman, presumably his deal was for a theatrical movie. Amazon bought MGM, probably just to get the Bond franchise, right? Like that that's most people's assumption is that that's really <laughs> yeah, the deep, thing. Yeah, deep library, to. yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's other reasons to buy a movie studio, but the big reason to buy a movie studio is a brand like Bond. And Despite in their initial press releases saying that they were gonna, they were still committed to theatrical, they moved Roadhouse to streaming. And Doug Liman wrote a very look. A Hollywood director is a political job. Doug Liman has made some interesting movies. I really like this for Mrs. Smith, actually. Although apparently it took a lot of remakes, uh, reshoots to get there. I don't care. Like reshoots yeah. are part of life. Like that's fine. <laughs> He's um, going to space with Tom Cruise next year, supposedly to shoot a movie oh. in space. Sounds in great. space, shooting in space, in, space? in outer yeah. space, yeah, with. Stop. Yeah, that's. I mean, who else? Who else would go to you? Go with to, with you to Tom? You think Brad Pitt's going to outer space? No, he's Tom's getting a little going. up there. He has a 
great cameo in a movie I saw at Sundance and I'm not going to spoil it, but like, I'm just worried about him. Let's not... Send him to space, Gigi. We want this. Let <laughs> Doug do it. I will say Let also, uh, personal anecdote, Doug Lyman, very kind to a friend of mine. Uh, they had similar lives growing up, had his back. So, I, you know, a big Doug Lyman guy over here as well. But he is boycotting the release. They're not the release, the premiere, his South by Southwest premiere of Roadhouse. And boycotting uh, yeah. the premiere is one thing, but like right. people don't make premieres sometimes. And like the little secret of Hollywood is a lot of times those premieres are empty, right? As soon as the lights go down, everybody's already seen the movies leave. Not at South by, but like in Hollywood, New York, a lot of times you go to the premiere, everyone walks the red carpet and then they leave. It's weird. Right. But the weirdest thing, like he wrote a very public letter calling out Amazon where he's like, look, I've made movies for streaming with Amazon, but taking a movie that was supposed to be theatrical and moving it streaming is a problem for me. And I'm going to comment on it. And it's, bold and i respect it and i'm glad he's out there swinging for theatrical release a roadhouse remake is an interesting one to swing because roadhouse is notoriously a movie that i don't remember being a huge box office hit and really had legs as a cable movie like roadhouse like roadhouse famously was on cable so much there are jokes about like um people would call brian grazer because his wife was in roadhouse and be like hey hey i see your wife on tv right now and hang up friends of his so like it's like a thing where it was shown on tv so it's like it's an interesting property to take this swing with but doug Lyman's out there taking a swing at amazon and saying guys we're gonna buy mgm you got to be putting this stuff in theaters and roadhouse should be in theaters yeah i think one you can read the full letter on deadline and we have snippets on no film school one of the things that lyman talks about is like who made this decision was this decision made by an algorithm that there were there were you know that he's not privy to or is there an executive that actually thinks this is a good idea? And some of the cases he makes is like, look, this was the test screenings were going through the roof. People are very excited. There's a very lucrative tie-in to the UFC that Amazon had, you know, paid to make sure was in the movie. Conor McGregor plays the villain, like huge UFC fighter. Like the brand recognition of Roadhouse, as Charles said, playing in cable, whatever, is super high. Jake Gyllenhaal, A-list movie star. You know, what is the motivation? And again, like this wasn't a cheap movie. This was, you know, probably closer to a $100 million budget. You know, shouldn't we be trying to recoup this cash in theaters? And then that's a big question, right? It's Doug Lyman wrote the letter and it's ballsy and cool. And, you know, it makes you feel energized. Like, yeah, I do want to go back to the movie theaters. And he does make the fact, like the fact that like, look, if we don't put big blockbuster action movies in theaters anymore. Why do we have theaters? You know, are yeah. our theaters just going to go away? Like, this is why people, the most people go to theaters, right? You know, like, like I said, like maybe I'm the guy seeing holdovers three times, but I, I people are seeing Fast Ten. They're seeing big movies. They're seeing Marvel. They're seeing Star Wars. They want to see Roadhouse, John Wick Four, whatever. Like these big movies are what draws people in. If we take that away from the theatrical experience, like what does the theatrical experience come? How can any movie theater continue to stay open? I think that's a great point. Look at the recent controversy with Scott Stuber leaving Netflix. Right, it's like a big headline. We haven't talked about it in the show because it just happened, but you know. Netflix was making decisions of what they weren't going to put in theaters and were leaving a lot of money on the table. You know, the Glass Onion made 16 million in a couple of weeks in limited theatrical. They'd never rolled it out to be larger. Uh, you know, if you look at Gray Man, which costs a ton of money, just left it on the thing. Red Notice was super watched, left it on this app. So, you know, like, what are we doing in Hollywood? And, and we can't, I guess if we all stay silent and continue to let these big corporate overlords make these decisions, again, we're not even sure they're human decisions. It could be just based on this sort of computer algorithm. We're going to lose that communal experience. And I think there are many, many, many movies this year that benefited from me seeing them in theaters. Theater camp was so funny. A riotous Aww. being around people. I saw that was like 
it, like that was amazing. I watched it at home the other day. Yeah, it was still very funny, but nothing was funnier than the guy laughing hard behind me and kicking my seat, causing me to laugh even harder. And I do think like that experience is, and like Roadhouse for sure is a movie that I'd like to watch with my phone in my pocket, paying 100% attention, cheering when, you know, someone inevitably gets their throat ripped out in an homage to the earlier one, right? But at home, I might miss that throat rip out because I'll be honest, it's very hard for me to completely shut off life and watch a movie on my couch. I also, I think in terms of when we think about takeaways for filmmakers, which is one of the theories of this podcast, one of the things I loved about that letter is how conscious Doug Lyman was of audience activation, right? Mm -hmm. This is what we're always talking about for independent filmmakers. We're always saying like, oh, you've an independent film project. You're going to go so much better if you can activate your audience. Like Angel's Perks, the feature I directed, like we worked with Alzheimer's organizations and we did a theatrical release where we activated, like we, we had a theatrical because we could activate audiences. And Doug Lyman, big director, big director from a time where you didn't have to think about it, has right. continued to adapt to the extent to which a significant amount of that article was talking about, like, we've already worked on engagement with the UFC community, and we, we're already getting social impressions in that community. Like, he is very conscious of, you want a theatrical? You have to activate the audience as a director. And I know that there's so many aspiring filmmakers who would really like marketing to be someone else's job and really like not to think about it. And I think it's really instructive that someone at the level of Doug Lyman making movies with Tom Cruise in space, Mr. and Mrs. Smith launching the Bourne franchise, we shouldn't forget Swingers, Yes, is conscious of, like, no, this is, this is not just, I made this beautiful movie. It is, I made this beautiful movie and it's testing well and it's already got audience engagement with an audience that's willing to see it in the theater. Yeah. The same way I guarantee you, going back to Greta Gerwig, I guarantee you Greta Gerwig was in marketing conversations about the amazing marketing campaigns for Barbie because it's mm -hmm. phenomenal and was very conscious of what audiences that could be activated to engage with that kind of content. And like, it's a very rare filmmaker. Nolan might be able to not think like that because Nolan like doesn't use email and writes on a typewriter and like, you know, was successful before the internet. But like, the vast majority of filmmakers, even at the Doug Lyman level, need to be conscious of like, oh, I'm tying to this audience that exists and yeah. I'm engaging with them. And I, I, I think that that letter is worth reading for most filmmakers because I think there's a lot to learn in there from it. Absolutely. I'm so glad we were able to take time to talk about it on the podcast and we'll link it in the article and the write-up for this podcast. So listen and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. All right, guys. So I'm vaguely on blue sky now so check me out on blue sky and i'd still write stuff for no film school the website and i will have articles soon on some camera reviews i did oh i played with the fuji a year later the fuji x-h2s check out that article i love that camera that Ooh, camera slaps everybody buy nice. that i'm so tired of hiring local camera operators and they've all got sony and like <laughs> I, sony's fine but it would be nice if i hired some local camera bcam ops and you guys said fuji so i'm gonna keep beating that fuji drum are you still accumulating people for your brooklyn Oh, Brooklyn35millimeter.com. It's running this summer. The application is live. I've got four students already. I need like four more students for Brooklyn 35mm. Spend three weeks shooting 35mm in Brooklyn this summer, June. Thank you for reminding. Of course, of course. I was thinking I actually am going back to Panama in June. So I was like, does it overlap with Charles's class? Because I'm like still very into this idea of living in New York for a couple of weeks this summer. But I think I'll be in Panama, sadly. Actually, I'm very excited to go back. I think we're going to do like a screening for the folks who helped make the movie and contributed in any way in Boca del Toro. And apparently Panama is now the bachelor bachelorette destination 
of 2024, which is the year we're in, right? Yes. Well, I am at Lost in Graceland. A lot of awesome content coming out on the podcast, continuing our and wrapping up our coverage from Sundance, like I mentioned before. Tomorrow, we'll have our interview with Lulu Wong. And I'm super excited about that. Somebody who, similar to Doug Lyman, very into sticking to the creative and sticking to creative honesty. And you'll be surprised at how she, how saying no to a project ended up giving her even more creative autonomy with one of the biggest studios. And we also will have Matthew Vaughn, the director of Argyle, a film that is, I believe, coming out in theaters. Out Friday, baby. Out We're Friday. doing it. I already have my tickets the second. Really? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, February 2nd. I can't. I love a Matthew Vaughn movie. Uh, you can find me at Jason Ellerman on Twitter, Jason at nofilmschool.com if you want to email me. The Wine Club guys we had on a couple <gasps> months ago. Their movie is now available to rent on Apple and Amazon. I went the to Wine the Club. LA premiere this week. It was a blast. It's very funny. Check it out. But yeah, and again, and, if you have questions, to ask No Film School, Jason at nofilmschool.com. And these are the guys who wrote their movie from the Jason Hellerman No yes. Film School, How to Write a movie in quarantine in quarantine book yeah exactly yes. soon to be just how to write a screenplay movie uh, in well, general yeah, <laughs> yeah. they uh, made it shot it in a week in in LA or in Napa for 50-ish grand and had their LA premieres have since signed with agent manager lawyer <gasps> sold cool. some rights and they're living the dream so definitely check it out again the movie's on Amazon Apple Voodoo all of it just you know type in wine club and it'll come up Congrats to them. You can get more No Film School at nofilmschool.com. You can like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast across all platforms. And you can follow us on social media at No Film School. Thank you so much for listening. 